Welcome back to the Vacation Bible School Podcast, the internet's only Bible podcast. We were told to say that. Uh, I am your youth pastor, Jason Kirk, joined by, I believe the title the internet has decided on you, Emily, is Interim Pastor. Thank you for having me yet again. Interim Pastor Emily Kirk, once again, pinnacle of humility. This podcast is an attempt to separate the inherited, handed down lessons that we have about the Bible and look at it in a new and fresh light. Let's go back and see if it squares with the stuff we were handed down in church as kids. It is not an attempt to denigrate faith. It is not an attempt to draw anyone toward faith. We're just exploring what's already there. Today, on episode three, we will be discussing the story of the patriarchs. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is the traditional lineage. Let's not forget about Ishmael, Abraham's other son. We will talk about the way the Abraham story splits into three different faiths. We'll talk about that in a little bit with a couple guests, an interfaith council, so to speak. First, let's talk about Abraham. So, Emily, the story of Abraham... What do you remember? Father Abraham Uh had many sons. Many sons. Yeah, that's always the first thing that comes to mind when I hear about Abraham. So I learned a lot, obviously, growing up. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, The main lesson we were taught about Abraham, beyond like the very basic biography, is there's this verse way later on in Hebrews when Paul or whoever decides that the lesson of Abraham is have faith. Pointing back at the story of Abraham, this guy who just trusts God, follows God around, does whatever God wants. Hey, hooray, it works. Faith was always a very challenging thing because I struggled to have a whole lot of it, and I always felt like I didn't have enough of it. And as a kid growing up in the church, I learned to hate myself because I did not have enough faith. I am failing. Some people have it. I don't. What a failure I am. I was a fake it till you make it Christian. And I faked it really, really, really hard. Sort of the lesson was blind faith. Pick the right deity, bet all you have on that deity, and hope you pick the right deity and you get to luck into heaven. The faith reading that is often handed down to people who are adapting this religion to another religion lines up with our current monotheist world. There is a God. Believe in him. Check yes or no. But the Abraham story is some mix of stories from 2,500 to 5,000 years ago from an almost entirely polytheist world. Emily, how many polytheists do you know? The Southeastern United States. Zero. So it's, it's an entirely different culture that we have to look back to, that we have to sort of recalibrate our minds for. Think about how ancient gods work in other stories about ancient gods. Forget that we are referring to the God of the Bible as Father of Jesus and, you know, everything we have come to think of this God as. What makes an ancient God from an ancient pantheon powerful? People giving them sacrifices, whether that means burning humans, setting aside time each day, gods competing against each other, rising and falling in power levels. The way it's done in American Gods, the book and the TV show, that's kind of how gods worked in ancient mythologies. The more followers you had, the more faith you had, the more power you had. It's also how Santa works in the Will Ferrell movie Elf. I think it's also how Twitter works. So yeah, Yahweh, uh, he's one of many Twitter accounts in Iraq now is where our story is centering at this point. He wants to gain more followers, but that's difficult when everyone follows a hundred different God accounts. Along comes this guy, Abraham, born in southern Iraq, a descendant from some like northern Semites who migrated around the time of Hammurabi, perhaps. And Abraham says, I'm going to follow one account. Yahweh is like, awesome. None of the Iraq stuff is explicitly in the Bible. It's sort of reading in some extended universe Jewish Muslim backstories of Abraham. 
And in those backstories, there's this king in Babylon, King Nimrod, in fact, who you might remember from <laughs> the first and second episodes of this, uh, the guy who's mentioned for like a sentence in the Bible and just keeps showing up later and later in all the extended universe stuff. He is a devout polytheist. Abraham decides to be a monotheist. They have a fight. Nimrod, in some stories, tries to burn Abraham alive for it. From the beginning of the full Abraham story, God and Abraham are this tag team fighting for each other, monotheist heretics in a world of polytheism. When the Abraham story starts in the Hebrew Bible, it's just, there's a guy. God likes him. Go! Abraham has already moved from Iraq to Turkey, and God tells him to go Canaan. That'll eventually become the land of his offspring. So Abraham, by being a heretic under King Nimrod, devoted all of his belief power to no God but Yahweh. Yahweh promises to return this favor. In some ways, this is when the God of the Hebrew creation myth Every culture has a creation myth, the god of the flood myth. This is when this god becomes specifically the god of a specific people, because not every culture has a story where a monotheist guy gets kicked out of a polytheist culture and him and the god form form a tag team together. That's more of a unique thing here. And you can look at the language to see this reading of belief powering God. It's not just something made up because it sounds cool. In Genesis 15, when Abraham and God are sealing their pact together, it's not necessarily about faith. Because like in some parts of this story, Abraham can literally look into God's eyes. It's really easy to believe that God exists when he's standing in front of you. The Hebrew word in Genesis 15 that means faith, belief. That word can also mean Abraham has confirmed, supported, or even nursed God. So very clearly, Abraham and God, that is a symbiotic thing. That is one building up the other. So in Genesis 15, when Abraham believes God, which is the moment when Abraham is deemed, quote, righteous, it's not blind faith. It's a deal. In that moment, before that moment, and after that moment, God is constantly swearing to Abraham and vowing and promising him stuff. It reads like he's recruiting Abraham. Meanwhile, Abraham is constantly doubting God and questioning God and afraid people are going to hurt him even though God said they won't. So remember in episode one, we talked about Yahweh is this like rookie God, right? Yeah. In episode two, Yahweh is learning on the fly. Yeah. Now we have a God who wants to become a real estate agent. And he's telling <laughs> Abraham, I got a great deal. I'm going to put it together. It's going to work. Abraham's like, I don't know. And Yahweh is saying, listen, you're going to have so many kids, the biggest, most beautiful pile of kids you've ever seen. And Abraham's like, for like five chapters now, we've been talking about how my wife is barren. How are you going to do? And God's like, listen, we're going to pull it off. I know how to fix your, your wife's tummy. Okay. God keeps swearing he can get it done in time for Abraham's lineage to continue. Genesis 15, Abraham and God sacrifice animals together, a standard treaty ratification ceremony of the time, a pact between Abraham and God sealed in fire and smoke. So when Abraham's family arrives in Canaan, his nephew Lot moves downhill into the city of Sodom. Abraham can stand on the hill and look down into Sodom. God says again to Abraham, everything you can see from this hill will be yours, like Mufasa. But it isn't all your families until 400 years from now when you have a ton of offspring who can murder and pillage the 10 nations all around you. And God lists those 10 nations. So Abraham is standing there hearing he's going to be the patriarch of this massive war empire. But he's just a guy whose only heir is with his wife's servant girl, just a shepherd on a hill, looking down into a plain at the city of Sodom, which doesn't believe in Yahweh. We also know Abraham is worried about the king of Sodom. Genesis 14, that king isn't as nice to Abraham as another king is, kind of insults him by implying Abraham is poor and needs to keep spoils from war. 
and generally unsettles Abraham. Right after this meeting with the king of Sodom, God tells Abraham, don't be scared. I'm your shield. So maybe Abraham looks downhill at Sodom and thinks, okay, I've given you everything. I got chased from my birthplace in Iraq. I left my ancestral homeland in Turkey. I followed you across the world. We swore a vow to each other. Genesis 15, sealed in fire and smoke. You told me and all my men and their sons to circumcise ourselves. So we did, even though I was 99 at the time. How... Where, hmm, where did circumcision come from up to this point? Um, How did he know what that was? Oh, so maybe God whipped it out and showed him? Oh, no. God's like, give me a knife. I'll show you exactly how it's going. Oh, no. <laughs> no. <laughs> so Abraham's standing there thinking about all the things he's given up for God, including part of his dick. Oh, no. <laughs> and, God, and Abraham says, you haven't even given Sarah the son you've been promising this entire time. You've promised me all this land, yet the land at the bottom of my hill belongs to the Sodomites. There is an enemy city with an eyesight on a plane that you promised me. Sodom's king threatens me. My nephew isn't safe in Sodom. Literally already been kidnapped once during a war and I had to go rescue him. Abraham's listening to God's plan this time and he thinks, With all due respect, Dutch, is this Tahiti plan really going to work out? You tell me, Arthur. Is it? Have some goddamn and not the words I would have chosen to use. <laughs> That's why you'll never make it to Tahiti. <laughs> so maybe Abraham thinks, hey, buddy, if you want to stand out among all these other gods, you got to make a mark. There's a city right there that doesn't believe in you. There's a city right there with a king who worries me. You said you'd be my shield. Maybe Abraham thinks, that place sucks anyway. It's a town of violent people who hate foreigners and can't keep each other safe. Genesis 18:16. God and his two angels are standing bodily in Abraham's camp. They turn and look downhill at Sodom. Next verse. God thinks to himself, Should I tell Abraham I'm going to destroy Sodom? That town really sucks. <laughs> and God thinks, Yeah, I'm going to tell him. Why would God who created the universe 17 chapters ago need to tell a human about this? So Abraham hears this and he's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. All right. He remembers his nephew Lot that still lives down there. So Abraham makes a bargain with God. If there are 10 righteous people in Sodom, don't destroy it. Remember, righteous to this point can sort of mean believes in Yahweh. God agrees and his two angels walk to the town square in Sodom, then follow Abraham's nephew Lot to his house. It does not say God's angels walk all around Sodom checking crime logs, seeing if people help little old ladies cross the street or not. It does not say they ask Lot if there are any other believers or righteous people in the city. It says they walk there, meet Lot, tell him to get out of town because Sodom's going to be blown up. Did Abraham really want to save Sodom, the city in the middle of the plain he was promised? Or did he just want to save his nephew while watching Sodom burn. I mean, it really just feels like he was there to get lost and get out of there. The evac mission. So the standard story of why Sodom is destroyed, hopefully we're already seeing there's a little bit more to it than the standard story. But the lesson that's handed down is... Sodom is destroyed because of all the gays. Yeah, that's like the fundamentalist Christian interpretation that we were given as kids. Not only does that story also suck, that story's also not in the Bible. I mean, we read it, both of us, <laughs> and we couldn't find anything that said that. So where that comes from is this. When the two angels reach Lot's house, a mob shows up and says, Hey, Lot, send your friends out here so we can have sex with them. So already, things are weird. But Lot says, How about my two virgin daughters instead? The angels say, Hang on, and just 
strike the crowd blind because they're here to do one thing, which is rescue Lot. They're not here to have sex with a mob. So does this mean God destroys Sodom because there are people there who want to have sex with male angels? I mean, it sounds like God was already planning on destroying Sodom prior to that incident taking place anyway. Plus, that's not what Abraham had agreed to. Yeah, Abraham didn't say, all right, don't destroy the city if you send angels down there and no one wants to grope or fondle them. Right. It's a very complicated deal. We know from episodes one and or two that God doesn't like it when humans and angels mate. That's why he sends the flood in large part. But there is nothing in the story of Sodom about God hating gay angel-human couplings more than he hates straight angel-human couplings. What's really going on in this story is... Hospitality throughout Genesis is shown to be incredibly virtuous. It's shown to be a way Abraham respects God. The standard custom, general politeness, all that is shown to be a way Sodom's king doesn't respect Abraham. So in this incredibly bizarre, messed up way, Lot being willing to sacrifice his daughters in order to protect these two stranger angels is presented as like an act of extreme hospitality on Lot's part, which is gross and weird and horrible. And like something out of like the worst episode of Game of Thrones. Also, just because there's a mob of potential rapists in Sodom, that does not mean the entire city doesn't have 10 righteous people in it. There are women, children, families there. So the angels tell Lot, run and do not look back. They emphasize this. We learned from the story of Eden when God slash angels really emphasize something, there might be a consequence. So Lot runs with his wife and two daughters to a town called Zoar. Sure. <laughs> leaving his daughter's fiancés behind because they think the whole thing is a joke. So now, Sodom, the city with a king who unsettles Abraham, the city on land that has been promised to Abraham, the city that doesn't believe in Yahweh, now has no civilians Abraham cares about. Dracaris. Meanwhile, Lot's family is running from this nuclear bomb that just dropped on Sodom. Lot's wife looks back at God nuking her city, and she turns into a pillar of salt, like a Zaxby's chicken tender. Just a nasty, squishy pile of flesh and salt. It's pretty gross. So just like with Eve in the Garden of Eden, God handed down one weird rule, a prohibition of knowledge, and blamed a woman for normal human curiosity. Lot's wife is later used as an example of a bad person by Jesus and Muhammad, even though she'd only had like half an hour to prepare to become a genocide refugee. Now things get worse. Lot is hiding with his two daughters in a cave. The older daughter, whose fiance was just nuked, says she thinks God nuked every other man on earth too. So they get Lot blackout drunk and rape him until they're pregnant, producing the Moabites and the Ammonites. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and like the story is basically this is the Israelites making up a shameful story about rival nations. What I'm confused about here is one of the daughters goes first one night and then the second the, the following night and then they wake up and it says that Lot doesn't know what happened. What happened when he found out that they were pregnant? What did he think happened? <laughs> he probably just thought he took an eye off them when they were in the town of Zoar. Yeah, but isn't the reason that they raped him in the first place is because they thought no men were left? That's the part that's really confusing me because like when they're going through the town of zoar on the way to the cave do they not pass like dozens of men along the street especially because like if the town next to us explodes i'm gonna go out on the front porch to try and see what i can see so like if you walk down the streets of zoar 
during this cataclysm, people are going to be standing around seeing. The Lot's daughters are going to see men on the way. They could have just gone back down to the town of Zoar. They're that desperate to get pregnant. It's very strange. So this is about as Game of Thrones as it gets here. God is blowing up a city. A father who's presented as a good guy is offering his daughters up to a mob. Yeah. And his daughters are getting him drunk and raping him. Maybe they were like held hostage by Lot all this time. You know, like you hear the stories about the parents who don't let their kids out of their basements forever and things. Maybe that's how Lot's daughters were. So like they were unwell because right. of some weird cult thing going on? I don't know. So Genesis 19, 27. The camera zooms out from the charred sulfuric ruins of Sodom to reveal Abraham standing on the same place where he had stood with God, watching smoke rising from Sodom, a pact between Abraham and God sealed in fire and smoke. Support for VBS happens in a couple different ways. You can throw us a few bucks at supportvbs.com, however many you'd like. By the time you visit that link, there might be bonuses for donors and or merch. But all Canon Bible Book episodes will always be free either way. Also, for no bucks at all, you can follow us at VBS Podcast on Twitter and Instagram. Subscribe to our newsletter at jasonkirk.substack.com and leave us a review on your podcast app of choice. Also, a shout out to our Council of Elders for this episode, University of Alabama Religious Studies Professor Mike Altman, Lutheran Minister Scott Johnson, and Hebrew Bible student Brad Haggard. Any mistakes that made the final cut are my fault, not theirs. We are joined this episode by our two co-pastors, an interfaith council of sorts, both of them from Pop Culture, the website, The Ringer. Uh, Roger Sherman, how are we doing today? Representing the Jews. <laughs> In this court, we got to bring you out to uh, Goldberg's music. Did he have little violins? And, no, I don't think they, they played up the Jewish theme enough with his wrestling Not career. enough. <laughs> well, yeah, it, probably for the best. <laughs> Is it sacrilegious to wrestle to the Hava Nagila? <laughs> We'll find out. I mean, you're, you're the one who can answer this, buddy. It's all up to you. <laughs> it's it's fine. Hey, thanks for uh, talking Torah with me on a Saturday morning. It's the preferred our preferred time for doing it. Although some people would say I'm not supposed to be using a computer device at this time. Uh, you could just write down what you have to say. Is that? <laughs> oh, well, just yeah. pretend you're uh, like know, on no. your home security camera. It's not. A you computer. can't write, but I can maybe talk about it to a non-Jewish person who can later bring it to you guys. That's what Al Gore is doing on the internet right now for you. <laughs> We're also joined by Shakar Saman. How you doing? What's going on, man? Just uh, really hoping that this appearance will repent for two decades of sin. Same. That's our entire objective here. <laughs> Wanted to bring you fellas on because this story, this portion of the Bible, and um, most of the first two thirds of the Bible are not uh, not not Christian stories. They have become Christian stories, but they were not intended to be the stories of Baptists and Methodists and Pentecostals, though they became that. And sure, cool, great. Particularly the Abraham stories, Abraham, Isaac slash Ishmael, and Jacob. These stories form the basis of the religions of the majority of the world, all springing from the most influential religion of all. So I, I wanted to be sure that we brought on some folks who have had a range of experiences with those other faiths as well. So we don't don't just accidentally center the entire thing around the extended universe of Christianity. <laughs> so I wanted to talk to you, you know, real quick before we got into the Bible stuff about sort of your, as we would say in the Christian faith, your walks with Christ. Christ meaning, of course, uh, not specifically Christ. So Roger, you actually, in addition to upbringing and all that, in college, 
college, you actually studied. Yeah, I was telling you about. I'm, I'm Jewish. Um, I and it, I'm from New York. So normally you'd consider Jews like a minority, but growing up in New York, like most of my friends and everyone around me was always Jewish, and it did not seem as if Jews were, you know, outnumbered living in New York. And Judaism is sort of a you're told of this. There's sort of this break between being like culturally Jewish and being religious and, and going to synagogue every Saturday. And it feels very important to every Jewish person to be like a part of this faith because there's been so much persecution and so many bad things have happened within the lifetimes of, you know, our grandparents. Uh, there was a there are some very bad things that have happened, you know, and then there's sort of this disconnect because you're these people within our lifetimes were persecuted for their religious faith and they cared very deeply about it. And then growing up in the 1990s in New York, you know, it seems like the Jews are doing fine. And most of the people I know are not going to synagogue every Saturday. We go on to high holidays. We do us, uh, which at Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, which is the new year. Uh, you go to synagogue for sure. You dress up nicely. And then uh, Passover, you do a Seder with your family, which is just a nice dinner with some weird rules. But outside of that, I wouldn't say there's a lot of like incentive to like get really deep into the literature of the Bible outside of maybe your bar mitzvah, which is very important it's a nice chance for your parents to throw a big party and then you study up on like one uh section or parshat is the is the word of the torah which you're supposed to read on a saturday mine was noah which you guys did last week you missed me on that <laughs> one uh it's a pretty good one like a lot of kids got stuck with like deuteronomy and leviticus Ugh. and yeah like what like what are you you have to go up and give a little speech and it's like how are you supposed to relate you know these big lists of numbers to your to your to your fan to your friends and be like oh yeah that numbers is a whole book i don't know what you guys are so doing how, how did how do you uh decide who gets stuck with what uh it's just based on dates because okay. each uh, each section gets tied to a certain date and it's supposed to hypothetically be around your birthday but very competitive New York the bar mitzvah scene tried to get any date at all you normally had to share because there are just so many Jews trying to throw parties. Uh, so it's is it sort of like those memes where it's like if your birth month is here and your date is here oh congratulations <laughs> you, you get the story of like the earth yeah, opening up sort and of like that. <laughs> Um, I was going to say, it's wild how we basically used the same formula for the draft. Yes. Like, this is your par shot, and this is where you go to war. <laughs> yeah. So that's the uh, the section we're doing today, Ishmael and Isaac. Those are the two readings that are done on the first two days of Rosh Hashanah, which are the two days where everyone is in synagogue. And they're very strange. And like you said, I did go out of my way to take courses in both the Hebrew Bible from a literary perspective and the New Testament in college. Because, you know, I kind of feel like these are the most important books ever. Even if you're not religious, it dictates so much about how so many people live their lives and it, I feel like it's kind of important to get like a base understanding of what exactly is all going on here it's often different from what you'd expect so uh so like the faith growing up it was sort of like you know just to draw sort of a parallel it's sort of like the Christians who you're very into the community and the holidays whereas like studying the scriptures is maybe not always the top priority absolutely there's just so much pressure to sort of keep Judaism alive because of what has what has happened to Jews forever seemingly every book seems to be about how <laughs> the, the the religion is very much like the the Exodus narrative 
hey, these people are persecuting us back then, then gets tied into the Holocaust and other places we've had to exodus from. It's You're sort of just like perpetually told, this is important, this is important, this is important, that we keep this thing alive. But although I know many people who are very proud of being Jewish, I wouldn't say I know many people who go to synagogue every Saturday or get deeply uh, attached to specific rules and regulations of what you're supposed to do. Most of my friends are culturally Jewish and I'm unsure how I feel about actually believing but I, I'm, I'm very fascinated by this book that sort of told us to be this way and why it happened and how it happened. So it's almost like uh, the culture of it is just as important as the religion of it. Way, yeah, but way more arguably. Okay. That you show up on those holidays that you uh, there, there's definitely that connection between Easter and Christmas uh, Christians and Rosh Hashanah and High Holiday and Passover Jews. Uh, we definitely like to show up on big days at Cross Religion <laughs> Shocker, how about you? Yeah, uh, my origin story, if we're going to call it that, is, is a little different. So uh, both my parents are from Syria and were raised Muslim, uh, Sunni Muslim. We moved to, when they moved to the States, uh, we lived, um, grew up in a really rural part of Michigan that is overwhelmingly Protestant Christian. And so outside of like my family and my aunts, uh, my dad's sister, their family who lived down the road, I believe we were the only two or two of the only like, there were a couple more, but Max maybe... 50 Muslim people in this town of 36,000, this county of about 100,000 in rural Michigan. And so I didn't grow up going to church because there was a mosque in town, but it wasn't like a nice one. Nobody really went. I don't think I've ever set foot in it. My parents who are more religious than I am. I mean, I'm not religious at all, ever set foot in it. But so my teaching, I, there was never a time in which in my life where I, you know, I sat down and I read the Quran because the translations are not really readily available. The way I, I was raised, the Quran was always in Arabic. So as a kid learning Arabic, I, I currently, I think, speak Arabic and write, read and write Arabic at about like a middle school level. Uh, I, if you drop me in a city, I could find my way out, but it's not like I'm going to flourish. Um, <laughs> and so it became one of these things where there was just a barrier to entry beyond like uh, the, the picture book about the Abrahamic text, basically what Genesis is. I mentioned when you brought up what we're talking about today, right in the beginning, I was like, oh, cool. I remember this from the picture book. Like, I got this <laughs> oh, yeah, I know Abraham in the ring of fire. I got this shit. We're good. Uh, as I, So I never really really had like this deep connection to it. You know, in Islam, you're supposed to pray five times a day or whatever. I maybe for the first 15 years of my life prayed five times total. Uh, my parents, we weren't really a, like a devout family. They strongly believe in Islam and the religion and heaven and hell and all of that. And as a result, you know, like they went to Hajj, they made their pilgrimage. But unless my mom is stepping inside of a mosque, she's not wearing a hijab, you know, where I, as you can see on the Zoom chat, I know as many of you have mentioned before, podcast, visual medium, I'm the most white facing, non whatever looking person alive. I didn't really have a connection to it. Uh, when I became a teenager, you know, I'm, like I said, my family's from Syria. We'd go back sometimes to visit my grandparents. And a lot of these from the Bible and the Torah and the Quran, a lot of these historic sites are in Syria. And so we do like day trips or weekend trips to places and see these churches just because it's like historically, it's really cool. Uh, and we went to, I, I really the day where I was like, oh no, I'm definitely, I'm not a Muslim. I'm not religious. I'm, I don't believe in any of this, but I, I'm cool with anybody who does believe was uh, we went to Malula, the church, I believe the story and a heathen, I'm a heretic, so forgive me, was Jesus is escaping from the church, from the people who, who are trying to chase him. And he prays to God and God opens a path through the mountain or something like that. And my, we're walking through this path with my grandmother, who's very religious, devout, wears a hijab when she's out. And I'm sitting there, I'm like, I'm pretty sure a river carved this. 
I, I took like <laughs> seventh grade biology, like pretty sure that's limestone and some water cut through. And she got so mad. And I was like, okay, I should shut up. I should not do this right now. So could we just say that like Jesus went like whitewater rafting along that river? I'm here for, yo, that's metal as hell. Well, like, is I'm that not a friendly compromise? I'm all for that. I would watch that movie. Sure. I would ride that ride at Disneyland. <laughs> I think that sounds about right. The other thing is I, and forgive me because I don't actually know really how it works in the other religions. When you when you go to church, when you pray, is it something where you're reciting parts of the scripture or are you telling stories or are you talking about the morality around? Because in Islam, when you pray individually, you know, you don't have to do it at the mosque. You can do it at home. You're reciting verses. That's, that's all the prayer is. It's like, depending on what time of day, it's X amount of verses you're reciting. And mm-hmm. so I had to memorize a couple of them when I was a kid. And I still, I think, have one or two memorized. They're the shortest ones or the one that you say every time. <laughs> the are equivalent of the Lord's Prayer, basically. Uh, uh, uh. But outside of that, because of that, it was just another barrier to entry. It's like, as an eight-year-old, I wasn't going to memorize 10 minutes of scripture to be able to pray. And so I was like, cool, I'm going to go play <laughs> Mario Kart. <laughs> let's actually, like, uh, let's have a round of prayer real quick. Emily, did, when Nazarenes pray, are you creating on the fly? Are you memorizing? It's or? on the fly. Okay. We, I don't remember except for like rare occasions when we would say like the Lord's Prayer or something like that. There was never anything that we recited. The only time that I memorized Bible verses was in Bible quizzing because that was necessary to win. <laughs> extremely American. Yeah. <laughs> but There's... if you got one word wrong, then you lose. So yeah, no, we didn't recite verses. It's harsh. Yeah. With At least with, with my experience with Judaism, it, it sounds like yours with Islam. It's There's this sort of weird... You know, being in America, speaking English, right. there's this sort of, the, the religion wants you to experience the book in this original text. When you go to synagogue, you hear them singing in Hebrew. They provide you an English translation, but the singing is done in Hebrew. And that, that I, I feel like does sort of put up a barrier. My synagogue, I always thought, did a pretty good job explaining, you know, what's going on and, you know, analyzing the text. But there is this sort of barrier where it's like you're studying something in a foreign language. There's this connection to this other land. Jews have not necessarily done a great job of, you're supposed to feel this connection to Israel and it's supposed to be very important to you. And some Jews equate being Jewish with caring about Israel. And that often is lost on people of my generation who maybe don't want to care deeply about a place I have never been and seems like it has a lot of problems and bad policies. Yeah, I think the other part of that too is, so I I was kind of the reverse of that, whereas I didn't have, I know you mentioned like the community aspect of Judaism growing up in New York, whereas I didn't have that, but I did have the connection to the old world because of my parents. You know, they're immigrants. Connecting to my grandparents and being able to go back to Syria, I'm a dual citizen, though I haven't been back for for a couple of years for reasons we don't need to get into. But so I didn't have the local kind of community where, so I like I, outside of like the family group and a few family friends, there wasn't like the going to synagogue or going to church thing or going to uh, the mosque thing that would have allowed me to kind of like build that peripheral, not peripheral knowledge to like set up a base for me actually learning this or feeling connected to this. But I did have that connection back to the old world, just familiarly. Shocker, when you memorized those prayers, did you actually get a translation of what those words meant? No. So like I can still <laughs> recite and fatiha which is the first verse, you know, the all, all of the verses start with like Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. And then that first verse I could recite it like a speed run, like a video gamer if I needed to. I have the verses, the the intonation down to like just a, a pinpoint. No idea what it means. 
Huh. Yeah. So we, even we, even so, you said your Arabic is sort of you know good enough. Yeah. But the Quran is sort of written in a way where it's like meant to be accessible, right? Yeah. So it's Arabic is a highly logical language, and it also is like a very beautiful language. It sounds like to me like warm running water. It, it's like musical. It's poetic, and as a result, it, it's supposed to be like very accessible. It's the reason I think a big reason why Islam is the fastest growing religion in the world and has been for however long is because if you can understand it or the trans translation of it, it's very, it like flows in a very logical manner. Something can't exist until something else exists. It's like the same way in the language, like in English, we say the blue car, in Arabic, it's the car blue, because you can't have something blue until you uh, establish what it is. It makes way more sense. I, I asked because like with, with Judaism, you know, we, before your bar mitzvah, I had to go to Hebrew school, mm-hmm. really just teaching you how to sound out all the letters. And even if they did teach us how to speak modern Hebrew, it's very different from the stuff that is actually in the Bible which was written thousands of years ago by people who cared about different things. And the actual translation into English is very difficult from the original Hebrew because there's all these words that are just there and haven't been used in 4,000 years in any other context. So when I also had to get up and sing my Torah portion and my Haftarah portion and those words, I was literally just memorizing the sounds and, and words of them and did not really get a get a full explanation of exactly what I was saying. That's how it works in Harry Potter, right? They just teach you syllables and then <laughs> things happen. It yeah. might as well be. Like, so the, the shortest verse in Arabic is That's the whole verse. I have no idea any of the things I just said, but that's never going to leave my head because when I took (laughs) Arabic lessons, we had to go on Saturday morning, 8 a.m. to a family friend's house and an Arabic teacher would drive down from Detroit and spend five hours in our town and just go like kid by kid for an hour. And like the last 10 minutes was like the religion portion. And we just had to like just rip through the book and memorize what we could. And that the shortest one, I knew I made sure I memorized it the fastest. That way I didn't have to memorize the longer, harder ones. Smart. (laughs) No idea what it means. There is some, like I've tried to read as much of the Quran over the uh, since our last episode as I could the thing you're saying about the logic of the language it really strikes me how much when this book was written the care of like self-explanation restating something 10 times across the course of 10 different to use the equivalent of a book in the Bible the care that is taken in saying here is the lesson from the story of Abraham we're telling this story because of the lesson it's not just random event happens plop as you would do in, in the Bible it's event happens somebody dies next story you know in the Quran, it's like, here's why we're telling this story. Here's what it explains about God. Here's the lesson to take from it. If the, if the thing... author was a comedian, there'd be a lot of callback jokes. <laughs> <laughs> it, there's lots of fan service, yes. The closest yes. thing that happens in the Old Testament is when, like, some guy is walking through the desert, and he's like, and then he placed a pillar there, and he named it Arbimelehegs, because he liked it. And, <laughs> yes. Yeah. And, like, I'm sort of staring at this lump of letters, like, is that what that means? Same thought. And and by the way, this happens at least 150 times in this section that you told us to read. It's just them walking through the desert and naming this well this thing. Yeah. Because that is where God spoke to him. And I don't even know if that's what the Hebrew means. And it often feels like you're reading this thing that isn't even meant for you. (laughs) There are so many, like in in the course of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, they're the main stories. And then there's so much stuff in the middle where like, all right, this is basically based on some some religion that was like 2,000 years old at the time and didn't even make the cut. All this stuff about like there was a shrine here, there was a well there, and like, you know, there's some ceremony that's like some pre-Israelite religion and like all that. 
And then in the Quran, a lot of it reads like a commentary on the most important parts of the Hebrew Bible, where it's like, it's, it's sort of like uh, the prophet Isaac did this for this reason. We will not worry about all the other stuff. We will just focus on the reason, you know? That, that's because it's the last book, man. They looked at the first <laughs> two and they were like, we got to make this easier. <laughs> just the differences are fascinating. And like thinking of them as sort of a continuation, is it's just awesome. Like the, the Hebrew Bible is this vestigial, mystery, primordial, like what is happening here? And then the Quran is like, it's cool, man. Like there's literally a verse like, hey, Jews, Christians, why are you arguing, man? We're all following the same God. It's cool. You know, it's it's like Come sort get a of beer, a, hang out by the campfire. Yeah, we're man. burning infidels. It's great. <laughs> Even like the verses in the Quran that we're told to be afraid of, you just read the whole paragraph and it's like, oh, they're literally ta- they're literally asking if it's okay if some if someone punches you at church, can you punch them back? The scariest verse in the Quran. That's all it's about. Yes, if there's, someone punches you at church, punch them back. It's fine. As a Jew, I, I wouldn't say this is at my synagogue, but there's always there's definitely in my community sort of this antagonistic view towards you know Palestine and Muslim people, not necessarily as a whole, you know, some of them are nice. There's definitely that element of, of antagonism there. But my synagogue is on 14th Street and 1st Avenue. There's a mosque on 11th Street and 1st Avenue. I just remember walking past it one day when I was maybe five or six years old. And it has the, it had this sign up on it. And the sign says, you know, the one God is Allah, Muhammad is a prophet. And here are a list of some of his, of Allah's other prophets. I'm probably saying this wrong. And it's like Adam, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jesus. And I'm like, wait. I didn't know that this was... <laughs> There's that, more well, about wait. Mary in the Quran than there is in the Christian Bible. As a kid, I had sort of had these this foundational belief that, you know, this was a culture that was different and opposed to mine. And then I remember walking past that mosque and seeing that those characters were also a part of this other thing and just feeling like I, I wasn't getting the full story from my side. And I, I feel like that's lost on a lot of people in a lot of religions. Yes. Yeah, the, the way it was explained to me when we were growing up and we were first being taught this is like, it, this is literally what the, the Arabic professor told me because I was, you know, in elementary school science or whatever. And he's like, okay, you know how your textbook says it's like the updated version, right? It's like the stuff that was in the old textbook, it's still there, but we found out new things. So we added new things. <laughs> and and I, since that day, I was like, oh, cool. So all of them are the same story. It's just like the the teachings that you're telling me are like, oh, we just found out more stuff because it was written after the, the other ones are written. It's like, oh, okay. Like, so that's why Abraham and Isaac and Ishmael and Jacob and all the way down the line are in this, but it, the, our guys aren't in your books because they just they were born after. Yeah, and Muhammad is kind of like half half the the Quran is like you know hey all that stuff it's still cool here's some other cool stuff and then half of it is like Muhammad complaining about his haters and like that's half the Bible oh, yeah. too is complaining about haters right and then like some laws that have remained on the modern books that probably shouldn't but hey that's a large portion of the yeah. Bible too <laughs> so I feel like this is actually a pretty good spot to drop in Isaac and Ishmael Roger since you have spent a large portion of your life pondering these two gentlemen could you intro this uh this matter for us. When I was rereading this, I was like, well, if Abraham is the father of all of our religions, it kind of makes sense we've got some daddy issues going on. Because <laughs> yeah. he, he does not do a great job with these sons. Abraham has a wife, Sarah, who is barren for 100 years. A lot of people up to her old age still are trying to hook up with her because Abraham says <laughs> <laughs> Abraham says that she is 
his sister. Uh, that was my the part of reading this that stood out to me the most. Abraham getting rich because he tells people that his hot more than 90- once. Yeah. Wife. It happens multiple times. Yeah. He just keeps telling people that his hot ninety seven year old wife is. His- <laughs> it keeps working. And it keeps working. And then his sons do it too his to Abimelech, too. the same sucker who just. <laughs> the Abimelech part was my favorite. Part is that how you say it? Of re- I don't know. Okay. <laughs> We'll let the we'll let the reader decide. So anyway, Sarah. I, is I feel bad. like that's the through line of everything we're doing. Is that how it works? I don't know. Yes, you get it. Yeah, that's the spirit here. I, I was just I was just remembering something that happened when I was a kid. We, I went to Hebrew school. I was taught how to read all the letters, and then I remember when I was probably like ten or eleven, uh, I had a camp counselor who was from Israel, and I was like, I know how to read Hebrew, and then he tried talking to me in Hebrew, and I was like, Oh, I can't. <laughs> I, I could just read it. I know what the letters sound like. And he was like, that that doesn't really help me at all. A- anyway, Sarah lives to very old age, isn't having kids. She's like uh, very worried about this. So she gives one of her servant girls, Hagar, Hagar. I feel like the pronunciation is Hagar, but... I, Hagar. Hagar. I feel like she's the mother of Islam and also created Sammy Hagar. Yes. Is what I'm choosing to imagine. Yes, the noted, the, noted Muslim. That, that's, yes. that's, Hag, that's, Hagar the, that's Hagar the Giant's mom, yes? Did I get this right? Sarah gives her servant girl to Abraham to, you know, allow him to carry forth his line because he has been told by God that many nations will come of him. And Sarah is worried about this prophecy coming true. So Abraham has a child with Hagar named Ishmael. Then later, someone tells Sarah, hey, at your old age, you're still going to have a child. And it turns out to happen. And she does at a very, very old age. She gets mad at Ishmael for existing because she wants her son to, you know, be the the father of these nations and to get all the attention and the birthrights from Abraham, who at this point is still Abram. His name gets changed eventually. There's a lot of name changes. There's a lot of Snoop Dogg, Snoop Lion situations. Uh, I don't know why that was my number one example of a name change. No, that's perfect. <laughs> Metal World Peace is right there, man. So, the artist formerly known as Abram. So because yes. Sarah is upset that this first child exists, she tells Abraham to cast off this child into the wilderness. And God says, well, you better listen to Sarah. Your child with Sarah is the important one. Your child with Hagar is going to be fine. Just send him off into the wilderness. And he does. And it's like a really sort of harrowing verse where Hagar is in the wilderness with this child and runs out of water and starts crying and God sends a well to them. I am always struck by the desperation and the sadness of that situation. And it works out. A nation comes of Ishmael and we're told that is Islam. And the Hebrew Bible adds that this nation was very mean. The The Hebrew Bible goes on to say that this nation was hostile. And that is the, the section on, on Ishmael. Uh, then Isaac goes on to be a much more prominent character in the book. And Ishmael uh, goes on in the Quran to build part of the great mosque in Mecca, I believe. Yeah, so the the my, my takeaway from this and, and revisiting this the, the Islamic part and reading the Bible part for the first time, y'all did Ishmael dirty. Yes. That was awful. Yeah. So, and we're going to get to the binding later, I know. But so in, in Islam, we believe gen- generally for the most part that it was Ishmael who was to be sacrificed, not Isaac. And then Ishmael agreed to it. Yeah. He, he heard about it. And then he was like, all right, that sounds good. Yeah. Let's sacrifice. <laughs> Let's do this. 
the part Roger refers to about uh, the well and the water and going back and forth seven times. So that is also part of Hajj, this great pilgrimage that all Muslims are supposed to take once in their life to Mecca. The Kaaba, you know, uh, Abraham built it with Ishmael, this great pillar to God and this place of worship. And that Ishmael was the one who was looking for the last stone until, you know, an angel from above presented the black stone to Abraham to finish peace. I'm going to take a swing. I'm not 100% sure. I'm pretty sure that the actual banishment of Ishmael is not actually written in the Quran itself. It's in like surrounding texts. Okay. But yeah, we're, we're a lot nicer to, to Ishmael than y'all were. Yeah, we're like, it, hey, you seem like a decent guy. In the Hebrew Bible, he's just sort of, it, it describes him, A, as being mean towards Isaac. He like sort of mocks Isaac when Isaac is born and mm-hmm. nothing good happens to him. He's just cast off. There's nothing said about his character besides that. I believe it, it says that uh, God or an angel tells Hagar that her child will be a wild donkey of a man. Like God has some emotional intelligence toward Hagar and Ishmael, but it's like, it's very condescending. It's, you're going out to the wilderness, you'll be fine. I'll point you at a well. And it's like, that's all you got, a well, you know, for a exiled mother and child. He t- Compared to the way he treats most of the people in the book to this point, he takes care of them, you know, but they're still very much treated immediately as second-class citizens. Right. And, you know, Sarah is so mean to these people. This is her, her servant who she, she which offered. already is a, a bad situation. Then she, like, offers for her to become Abraham's wife. And then when things turn out differently, she goes back to being rude and abusive towards Hagar. You get this sense from the text that there's this one group that's chosen and therefore good, although it doesn't quite explain why. And there's this other group that you're just supposed to regard as evil. But on Rosh Hashanah, I always feel this like connection with Hagar as this, you know, voice that's lost and crying out to God. And that really strikes me as such a human moment that that connects with what prayer is supposed to be in its purest form. And then uh, you zoom out a little bit and the Bible is very cruel to these people. I, it's it's tough to reckon with. Yeah. One, one thing I, I kind of stumbled upon when, when looking back into this is it, and correct me if I'm wrong, in, in the Bible, the story of Ishmael basically like pretty much stops with the banishment, right? It's not like there's a lot of check-ins after that. More or less. More yeah. or less. Yeah. In, in Islam, we check in with him a couple more times. The Quran, uh, Abraham goes to Ishmael's house and Ishmael's not there, but he's greeted by his wife, who is very rude to Abraham. And so when he relays the message, I- Ishmael knows that it's Abraham who's saying it. And the message is basically in code, like, your wife sucks. <laughs> and so he divorces that wife wow. and then finds a new wife. And Abraham comes back and she's very nice and kind to Abraham. And then the message that is related is like, your wife's really cool. And he's like, cool, <laughs> sticking with you, girl. Boy, that's heartwarming. <laughs> Just a father looking out for his son. Yeah, there is a lot in these stories. Um, It's very clearly Abraham, chosen one, and then the only children from his lineage who can remain chosen ones are the ones that God is, here's your wife, she's barren. I will let exactly one child through, and that child is the chosen one. No matter how, if you have a dozen children, there will only be one that I permit to very clearly be the next in the line of chosen ones. And all the others, those are, you know, a lot of them are going to form enemy tribes and all that stuff. There's a lot of gatekeeping by God. Over and over again, because then later there's Esau and Jacob, and we'll talk about 
about that. And again, it seems like there's this one child who we're supposed to support and one who we're not, uh, even though it doesn't quite explain why. Right. Esau <laughs> seems like a great guy. And then there's uh, Leia and Rachel, who are the sisters who one of Rachel is loved and Leia is not. And Leia just keeps pumping out these kids right. so that her husband will love her. Well, and even the description <laughs> of the two of them, Leah is like, she has tired eyes. <laughs> there are some interpretations where it's... What was that about? That was so mean. There are some translations where it means like soft eyes or gentle yeah. eyes, but then there are some where it's like sleepy, sleepy Joe Biden of a lady. <laughs> Old, old sleepy well, because eyes. It, it's funny. There are very few descriptions of people that we've led up to this far, except for the women. They're either beautiful or they have tired eyes. It's like constantly judging the women, but no men are ever judged. Yeah, like Sarah is so hot that the Egyptians cannot resist her, whereas Abraham, what does he look like? Right. <laughs> Who cares? I mean, there's a lot of, I, I just had like an epiphany kind of moment where there's a lot of like 1v1 rivalries in this. Yes. And I think this might explain why I grew up a Michigan fan. Because we're always losing. Ishmael lost to Isaac objectively. Jim Tressel's out here running laps. <laughs> yeah, the, like the entire story of Genesis is very much like sibling rivalry that mythologically at least explains like, all right, this is why these people live here and we can't stand them. You know, Noah's brothers go in these directions and like this one's bad, this one's good, you know, and that just continues Cain able like it continues for the entirety of Genesis even getting to sisters and sister wives sibling rivalry just remains this theme that explains why it's okay to hate certain people basically and everything in this these chapters is so intense to the point that you almost forget that a 90 year old woman gave birth and that's not the craziest thing Hold on. Not she even was close like, to the craziest thing. She was like a super hot 90 year old woman. Yes. So that all, these, that all these kings are just like, gotta have some of that. <laughs> so yeah. Sarah has gotten to the age of birth child at uh, 100, I believe is the number. This is the child she's been desperate for forever. A child promised by God. God swore these oaths. This child would happen. You know, the entire prophecy, the promise hinges on this kid. So then God says, hey, Abraham, you know that kid, your favorite thing in the universe that your wife loves so much she exiled the rest of your family for? Here's what I want you to do with that kid. Roger, Roger, what, what happens at this point? Uh, he says you gotta go kill him. Wow. You gotta go sacrifice him. You you must sacrifice this child. And he goes, he goes to the land of Moriah. He climbs up a mountain. He prepares to sacrifice the child. He does everything that you're supposed to do when you're sacrificing a ram, which is good and normal, <laughs> except he does it to his child, which is wrong. Uh, he gets all the way up there then an angel stops him and says you know you pass the test if yeah you show that your faith in god is is enough that you are willing to sacrifice the thing you care the most about in the world to bring it back to the daddy issues thing there's something that my rabbi pointed out one time one year in one of his sermons that that's always stuck with me is shout out rabbi siebert town and village synagogue good guy up until then there's this dialogue between isaac and uh, Abraham, you know, he's like, hey, dad, where's the where's the ram? You know, we thought we were sacrificing a ram. And he's like, oh, don't worry about it. And they're talking like a father and son would. And then after the binding, Isaac never speaks again to Abraham, is never mentioned with him at the same time, at the same place. It's just fundamentally the most, you know, traumatic thing a person could possibly experience is their father laying them down and trying to kill them. And it think about how that must have affected those two humans. So then he's bound, they have the wood, they're ready to make the fire. Abraham raises the knife and then God says, hang on. So like we are taught in our various upbringings to take lessons from all of this stuff. From this story, Emily, we probably had the same thing, which is basically like, trust God. He won't, he won't steer you wrong. 
even if he almost does, you know, like <laughs> just trust yeah, just God. Just blind was, faith. Yeah. Always. Shocker. In, in the Quran, it's a little bit different because the child who in this yeah. version is Ishmael is like, cool. What is the lesson that you are taught to derive from that? In, in the Quran, they don't actually say which child it is. It says the son. But it happens directly after the verse where it's like, Sarah is having a kid. Right. It's okay. going to be Isaac. Congrats. It's, unless there's like one of those like 10 year time jumps. Like we know which one this is. <laughs> the, he agrees to it. He's about to be sacrificed. And then God says, wait, wait, hold on. You've proven your faith. You will make a different great sacrifice. And then he sa- and then sacrifices an animal, a ram or a goat or whatever it might be, depending. Because now Muslims do that during Hajj. We're just trying to, we're, we're all um, uh, like Civil War reenactors. Okay. We're just going back once a year and just retracing the steps, wearing the old garments, <laughs> doing seven laps around the Kaaba and killing a goat, and uh-huh. casting stones at the pillar of shaitan. It, it, it's really, I, I believe, like the same lesson which is supposed to be give your faith and God will steer you right. The the great sacrifice, because a ram could not obviously meet the same sacrifice as your son, is either supposed to be the sacrifice of the total willingness to, you know, subdue yourself or like follow God, or the sacrifices that Ishmael's like line, his lineage of all the prophets to come would have. Uh, their, their eventual sacrifices combined are this great sacrifice and that's why Ishmael had to. One, one difference between the religions here I was thinking about as I wrote this is in Christian Christianity, this sacrifice of a son turns out to be God comes through in the end and does it on his own. You know, he 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 makes that leap himself. Thanos he, voice. You know, he he <laughs> loves the myself. world so much that he sacrifices his only son. Judaism, that reciprocity is never there. It's just God wants you to be this faithful in, and you will. Yeah, Whereas Christians love the New Testament reverse engineer foreshadowing, you know. Yes, that, that which happens all the time in between the Old Testament and the New Testament. But that like eventual in Christianity, it feels like someone took this leap of faith and it's a a leap of faith that God himself will sort of meet you halfway there. I, I, in Judaism, you're just told the story of this person who had all the faith in the world and you must be that way as well. And that is a demand. And that is one that your forefather kept and you will keep also. So it's not necessarily about there will be a reward when God does it himself. Yeah, just do it. Gotcha. The the Nike God. Yes. (laughs) As the, the swoosh was on the knife that he held aloft. <laughs> the um the best version of the Christian interpretation that I've read came from uh the comic book Judas by Jeff Loveness. In this idea, God wasn't actually testing Abraham. God was testing himself. God's almost running a simulation to see, all right, I know I have to sacrifice my son to save the world, blah, blah, blah. How hard is that really going to be? Let me let me son tell my favorite person simulator. to do it. <laughs> it's like, let's see how hard this is for Abraham. And then he's like, oh no, this is really going to suck. The other version that I really like, looking back at like the historical context of when this stuff was written, child sacrifice in the ancient world to a God prevalent all around the world, you know, for, for hundreds or thousands of years, like the most precious thing in the world, if you give it up to God, that increases your God's glory and power, you know, and, and what could be more precious than a son that you've waited, a child that you've waited decades and decades for. As the knife is raising to that point, God is still just like any other God in the world. From modern eyes, this is horrible and awful. But at the time, this was just a God being a God. And then at the moment when the angel shows up and says, no, drop the knife, like that's, it's sort of an epiphany for the God character in the story, Yahweh Allah, who's saying like, wait a minute, wait a minute. I don't have to be like all the other gods. I can have a moment of grace, a moment, like there's more to this than just raw power, just feeding on a sacrifice. There's more to this than demanding people slaughter things. I like the idea of it being less a test of Abraham and more a test of God. I liked it. <laughs> back, back then, gods were a little bit 
you're, you're just sort of an expected meanness level from deities. Yeah. Like looking back on it, like we want God to be like the wise, wise grandparent in the sky and all that. Well, at the time, no, that wasn't the deal. <laughs> all around the world, gods were like these things you sacrifice blood and fire to, and then they win wars for you. And then the, like, there's these little moments where he's like, I don't have to be that. I'm reading this book in 2020 is like, what's up with this God who makes someone sacrifice, think they might have to sacrifice their son. And back then people like, wow, a God that won't make me sacrifice right. my son. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. Wow, this sounds great. This is the fun times religion. <laughs> Like, I, forgive me if this is heresy, but is God a jerk? At times. Is that, is that the takeaway from this, these chapters? Like, he's just... At like times. Even, even, congrats, like, you didn't kill your son, but that's a mean thing to do. Sure. Yeah. That's depends a mean trick which, to pull. Depends which religion you follow. Yeah, I don't, I don't mean to do the thing where it's like, well, let's judge God by the standards of the times. It's not oh, like... Sure. We're not like apologizing for colonialism or anything. It's it's more like he was the nicest god in the world at this point for whatever that's worth. True. <laughs> so Isaac survives because his dad didn't stab him in the throat and set him on fire. So cool job by everyone there. <laughs> Good dad. Abraham and his servants find 40-year-old virgin Isaac. 40 is the number. He was a virgin, a wife from Turkey because they didn't want him to marry a trashy Canaanite woman. Uh, he marries a pretty, she's described as pretty, a uh, lady named Rebecca because she's nice to a camel uh yeah the the thing about not wanting to marry that that definitely has stood forth in judaism over the past four thousand years our parents not wanting us to marry the people in the country we live in you gotta marry another person from our tribe <laughs> we, we're still holding firm on that i read that and i was like wow we've been doing this for five thousand years huh yeah like throughout this story it's very clear the uh parents and it feels like particularly the mothers do not like the idea of their kids marrying anyone besides like abraham nieces and nephews yeah they keep getting sent back there <laughs> and in fact later on like esau does this and they're like mm. and he's like yeah okay. it like it like brought her his mom great grief that <laughs> so he's kid. so instead of saying like i will divorce them and marry he says i will marry both because <laughs> that's esau <laughs> a big guy who does big stuff love huge esau fan <laughs> <laughs> so I, I like this one abraham dies at the age of 175 isaac and ishmael come together to bury him by sarah um, and when you add in the context of Ishmael becomes, you know, a, a key figure in Islam, you have sort of this picture of like Jews and Muslims coming together at the moment of Abraham's death and like, hooray, how nice, right? And then uh, Isaac's wife, Rebecca, is barren. Here we go again. Another barren lady. <laughs> Once again. Uh, and her sons are Jacob and Esau, <laughs> who are in the womb, are described as divided nations. Like they're fighting <laughs> in the womb. <laughs> I remember reading the Jacob and Esau, or being taught the Jacob and Esau story as if we're supposed to to be rooting for Jacob, the son who cheats big, strong hunter Esau out of everything. And I remember just being like, no, I'm I'm on Esau's side here. (laughs) I'm on the side of the big, friendly, hairy hunter guy and not the snivelly guy who cheats him out of his birthright and his blessing from his dad. <laughs> I like that they there's the section the section where Esau's like, wait, you you gave Jacob the blessing. Why don't you just bless me too? And Isaac's like, nope, well, only one blessing. <laughs> And Isaac's like, like all right, your blessing, <laughs> yeah, there, we'll give you the leftover blessing. And Isaac is very sad because he's been tricked by Jacob who like, you know, put on all, all of Esau's stinky hunter man clothes and like with Rebecca's help, like dresses up in Esau as Esau and smells like Esau and like goes in there to trick blind dying a Isaac out of the birthright. Um, and as soon as Isaac realizes he's been tricked by his Loki son, uh, he's like crying. And then here, his, here comes his big hairy Thor son Esau. who's like, all right, dad. <laughs> 
<laughs> Give me my stuff. And all that's left over, Isaac says, well, the only blessing that's left over is you're going to have to fight and fight for everything you own and your brother's going to have more stuff. Thanks. Thanks, Dad. Cool blessing. I like that you mentioned Loki because every other religion has trickster gods. Yes. And they're always bad. Yes. Yeah. And then this one has a trickster guy and we're supposed to be on his side and he pulls <laughs> tricks on his, on his dumb, strong brother. So, yeah, I, I'm glad you mentioned this because like this is my single favorite thing about all of Genesis is Jacob as a Loki with a dumb Thor brother who tricks his dad. He's this like, his name means like usurper, right? Something something like that. Is that what Jacob means? All right. (laughs) (laughs) It is now. (laughs) So Roger and I have talked about this a little bit, how it's presented as Jacob is the good guy. I I know when I was growing up, that was definitely the lesson. And it was like, wait, why? And it's because he did what God wanted. Don't worry about it. it. Emily, was that the same for you? I don't know. I don't remember, honestly. Okay. I remember the Abraham song. And okay. <laughs> it's not all from this time. I mean, I, I remember Jacob and Esau and hearing about Jacob and Esau, but there were so much more about let's keep everything light and fun. Okay, than got it. Getting into the depths of everything. Probably so, smart. To me, it, it does fit very strongly into this Jewish tradition of, you know, we're always sort of outnumbered and have to sort of find ways to get by, maybe in lands that aren't even meant for us. And that's sort of connected with Jacob because he's. He can't even go out and hunt. He likes to stay inside the tents. He's not going to outcompete this Esau guy. And he sort of schemes and tricks his way into it. And I feel like that also is the birth of lots of anti-Semitic tropes. Quite <laughs> possibly. small and tricky. I feel like the initial story, it's like Jacob is like, oh, this little scoundrel. And then he goes on this th- this growth. You sort of realize that like this guy's a survivor. That's the fundamental trait here. Shocker, what did you make of uh, the Jacob and Esau story? So uh, in Folk of this is the first time I'd read the story in my entire life and i i was really kind of struck like you're saying how we're in every other story you know it's the trickster is the bad guy and this one it's like oh no no you're supposed to like him and i'm just like why maybe maybe part of it is like growing up in american pop culture where it's like goddamn nerds yes like, <laughs> i don't root for the nerd i root for the hulking hulking hero over here i was really kind of surprised by the way the story went in that sense of like number one like you're saying it's like you can't the stolen blessing can't be passed he can't give you a second blessing. It's like, well, why? Right. <laughs> and then Jacob runs away so that he can just be safe because he knows Esau's coming to get him. And yes. again, he's a scrawny nerd. Yes. What we're we're cheering for a coward. What's happening here? I like that. <laughs> nope. So like there's this there's this lineage of tricksterism as it's referred to in like every religion and mythology. In in the story of Genesis, it's presented over and over as like just a survival mechanism in Abraham constantly lying about his super hot uh hundred year old wife being his sister and like it working for him and God thinking like, that's great. That's a genius scheme. We're going to keep doing this. We're going to keep running the scam all over the Middle East. And then, you know, Rebecca tricks Isaac. Like it's the entire plot is Rebecca's idea. Isaac's wife. She's the one who masterminds this whole thing where Jacob robs Esau. And then Jacob takes that trait from Rebecca. And like later on, he gets mixed up in a bunch of, it just over and over, it sort of flips the trickster thing on its head where it's presented as this is what you got to do. Don't be stupid. I was just going to say, it's also wild to me, at least reading this for the first time that like from like you're saying in in the womb we're told that they're divided nations we're told that like on the way out jacob tried to grasp the heel so he could be first like right. you're just really from the start painting this guy as like the villain and then it's like surprise you should have been the villain all along that was a smart move <laughs> well that even the de- even the description of esau being this red hairy baby like it's like not <laughs> yeah. flattering at all there are for li- a baby <laughs> there, there is non-canon stuff extended universe stuff esau is literally born with a beard <laughs> Look, as, as someone who grew fa- started growing facial hair very young, I do identify. <laughs> 
instead of relitigating Jacob, I just feel like we should be giving Esau more respect. I'm a huge Esau. He's like the one character in this book that I genuinely love as a human. He doesn't do anything bad or mean. He just wants his lentils. He wants to hunt for his dad and make his dad nice food. And then at the end, Jacob goes off and he marries two sisters, lives his own life out there in the ancestral homeland of Abraham. And then he comes back to Canaan and he's worried that Esau is going to kill him. Because he's he's, he's on the run gifts. from he's on the run from his uncle, who he and his new wife Rachel have just ripped off with this like very complicated scheme. Like they're taking his best the, the best half of his of his <laughs> right. livestock with this. There's this entire chapter that's nothing about like this genius goat, complicated goat mating, like goat mating chapter. <laughs> yeah, and like at the time it was like wow, this is the greatest heist I've ever read, and now it's like you could have just summarized this. This is yeah, <laughs> yeah the then, goat mating was chapter like that, was like... and then Ocean's Eleven. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but we realized that like Uncle Uncle Laban, he tricks the trickster. Emily, you you, you had feelings about this part. Where he tricks uh, yeah, yeah. Well, so I'm so confused. Okay, so so he, he he sees Rachel and he's like obsessed with her, but somehow he sleeps with Leah and doesn't know yeah. it till the next day. He doesn't realize that he got the wrong woman married to him. He, he has the sex. They have one sex with each other. Right? How? It was very dark. Like, did they did they not did he not say, "Oh, I'm so happy to be married to you, Rachel"? And she was like, "Wait a second, I'm Leah." <laughs> I, I mean, was there no I was conversation back, at all? I'm, I'm just, how do you, how do you confuse like this woman that you like are lusting after for this other one that you couldn't care less about? And you worked for seven years. You worked right, for seven years right. to get Rachel. I assume he looked over at Rachel and was like, that's the one I want. And, and then, then, and then he stuck right. around another seven years to get Rachel. And I'm like, well, at least she's not a child anymore. Probably. He's been there for 14 years yeah. due to Uncle Laban's trickery. But the- I don't, I don't see how a man would stick around that long. He'd be like, I'm out of here. Year. 14 years but years years must have been so different if you yeah know, these have, i i if, said the same thing if there are these sexy hundred year olds <laughs> that's true yeah that's true yeah we could also assume that the 14 year might have just been a couple months right these no. long like lengthy year-long pilgrimages were just like what we'd equated like a 30 minute stroll down right. to Whole Foods. Right. They just had no sense of time. There were no watches. So everything yeah, it's took be a like, very long time. It's gotta be like 14 years. They're right? like toddlers, very dramatic about everything. Oh, it's been all day. And it's like 8 a.m. <laughs> but at least those, those 14 years gave Jacob time to plan the speckled, <laughs> the speckled goat heist. The, the great, great, the great goat cattle goat caper. <laughs> so, yeah. So then Jacob and his two wives, who have again done the competitive mothering thing. Leah is, of course, insanely fertile. <laughs> <laughs> Just popping out babies. Whereas Rachel does the Sarah thing where she's like, all right, sleep with my servant. But unlike Sarah, Rachel is like a pragmatist. She's like Jacob. She's like, hey, whatever works, we're going to roll with it. Rachel's servants have children and Rachel's like, great. Those are my kids. These are my babies. (laughs) I'm claiming these kids. Which I I don't know that that's any better, but. It's kind of better. They didn't kick them out, at least. I got to say, I feel for Leia. I like that she was running up the score on Rachel a little bit. She's like, here's my fourth kid. But I felt so bad because it specifically says, she keeps saying, now my husband will love me because I've had another child. Yeah, it's really sad. With every child. Yeah. And I, I, want, I, I want the sad Arrested Development music playing like, da, na, 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 na. Is that like narrator voice? He didn't. <laughs> yeah. 
again with the sex. He apparently he loves Rachel so much, but apparently he's still fine just going over to Leia's right. house. Do they live in separate houses? And the servants. Yeah, also like, both of their servants right. are now involved. Right. So there's many women involved here. Like I feel like if he really wanted to have these kids with Rachel and she was his favorite wife, maybe don't keep impregnating Leia, but I guess you just kind of had sex with everybody all the time back then. It just seems like the whole would, would that lesson have made the world so much better if that was in there, Raj? <laughs> from that. But the whole Bible up to this point is just about be fruitful and multiply. And that's all these people are trying to do is just continue to multiply. It's ridiculous. God said one thing and Jacob was like, they ran with it on it. Yeah, I got you. And there's this oddly, it it tells you that being fruitful and multiplying is like the number one thing you can do. But it also keeps making these barren women sort of the heroes of the story. It it applies sort of backwards. It's it's a confusing logic and (laughs) such an interesting such an interesting moral scale that I couldn't quite grasp. So then Rachel, because she is the chosen lady here, then she finally births a son. And we immediately, from the previous two rounds of this, we immediately realize like, okay, this kid's special. And it's Joseph. We know right away at this point in the story, Joseph is going to be a special, special boy. And then Jacob and these four women, and at this point, 12 or 13 kids, there's another son who's born. I, I didn't write down when. We'll get to that next episode. This entire crew and all their stolen merch and Rachel scams Uncle Laban out of his uh, like his, his, his idols. <laughs> yeah. And she even tricks Jacob because she doesn't tell Jacob. And when Uncle Laban catches up and he says, where's my where are my idols? You know, where, where are these little gods, little statues? Jacob's like, I don't know if you find anybody here who has them, punish them because he doesn't even know his wife has them. <laughs> because she is unwilling to stand because she's on her period, she said. So she's like hiding them under herself. And all these men are like, oh, OK. Ah, don't <laughs> <laughs> don't stand up, please. Stay. Don't go anywhere near her so like she used male fear of the female body to like pull a scam on everyone (laughs) in sight so like now we have like jacob scammed his brother son and grandson of people who uh were willing to to trick their way uh from situation to situation now he has a wife who's even trickier than him and they have 13 kids so that's gonna go great those 13 kids are gonna go this is gonna be perfect (laughs) they're very this was that steve martin movie cheaper by the dust yeah (laughs) Yours, mine, and ours was the other one that was... Is Joseph the 12th of the kids? I believe so, because there end up being 12 brothers and a daughter. And then there's Joseph is the special boy. And then there's the runt of the litter who, like, is Joseph's little brother. And so that kid is, you know, Joseph is protective of that kid. Why hasn't someone done a Bible sitcom about all these? (laughs) (laughs) This would be a good group. Well, He's got 12 kids. Yeah. And 12 boys. Can we give it, like, a really cheesy, like, early 90s, late 80s intro monologue? Exactly, exactly, exactly. You know, full house, but for when you have 12 kids with your two wives and two servants. It's too many cooks, just biblical. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) But Um, Joseph Joseph comes out last and then he he befriends himself to his brothers by being like, I had a dream where you guys were all praying to me. Yeah, yeah. Joseph is immediately like this little snitch, this little twerp going up to all his big brothers and like, I had a dream about the sun, moon and stars all worshiping me. 
Uh, you want to know what it means? It's you guys. You are the, and even his dad is like, wait, am I the son bowing down to you here? Like, <laughs> well, it feels like throughout I, all of this though, that everyone is telling you exactly what they're going to get by saying that the Lord is going to provide this or the Lord is saying, oh, I'm going to provide this. So their actions are what's making these things take place at this point. So they're saying everything that they can to make these things come true. It's like the secret, that book, you just will it, you put it, you put it out there in the universe and then it comes back to you. All right. We're going to bring on Creflo Dollar to talk talk about speaking things into existence <laughs> shocker you brought up uh, michigan fandom earlier we are definitely always rooting though for the little brother between uh yeah between <laughs> I, I, isaac is the second born rachel is the second born jacob jacob yeah with esau joseph is obviously you know comes out a, a half second later <laughs> grasping the heel again like and michigan joseph, the the spot it was so close yeah. so, <laughs> joseph, so what i'm joseph getting is, here and is, Joseph is number 12 out of 13. He's finishing <laughs> bottom of the Big Ten West. <laughs> so what I'm, what I'm getting here is much like a 10-year stretch of Michigan football. This is all Mike Hart's fault. <laughs> yes. Also, I just want to point out we are doing a uh, podcast with a Northwestern alum and a Duke alum, and we've turned to discussing football. Yeah. Somehow. <laughs> football school, man. Duke, uh, like Coach Cut said, Duke football, hell yes. Hell Duke yeah. Football. But no, actually. I was thinking of football when we were talking about Jacob and Esau as well, because I was like, are we all predisposed to like Esau because all of us are football people? Because we're just like, I really like the big hairy guy. Yeah, possibly. <laughs> Lineman play. Yeah, we're looking at him like, all right, I can see this guy in pads, whereas Jacob is like, get that guy a clipboard. This guy's three-point stance is amazing. <laughs> I, I forgot to mention, though, the best part about Esau is that when Jacob is on the run and he fears that Esau is going to kill him and he's sending him these gifts, Esau doesn't care. He doesn't want the gifts. He just goes and embraces his brother with this big, red, hairy hug. Because he's a, Esau's right. a good guy. And I'm writing and I'm forming a new religion where we're just all pro Esau. The, uh, the Edomite. It just sounds like a left tackle to me. That guy. That guy just... <laughs> this is the Edomite religion because we, 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 Esau forms the, uh, the Edomites. Who go on to be gonna, bad guys in the Bible, at, but I think they got a bum rap, clearly. Well, After this podcast, I'm going up and like Googling closest Edomite. <laughs> <laughs> Finding an Edomite temple, yeah. Are there any Edomite churches out here in LA that I could uh, <laughs> sign up for? But before Jacob and Esau reconcile, the single greatest moment in Genesis happens as Jacob and his crew are on the run from Laban, who they've ripped off. He knows they're about to counter Esau, who, as far as Jacob knows, is still pissed about the birthright thing. So Jacob is between all of Jacob's chickens are coming home to roost. So he has this moment where he's he's panicking. He's like, all right, what do I do? And he does not just one thing. Noah would do like one thing. He would say like, God, what do I do? Abraham would do like one thing, which is just fret and whine until God fixed it for him. Adam would just hide. Whereas Jacob does all of it. He prays. He divides all his stuff in half. So Esau could only possibly take half. He hides his family. It Like he's doing all these pragmatic things at once. And then he's standing there by himself on the side of a river at midnight. And all of a sudden finds himself in a wrestling match with a thing that is kind of explained as God might be an angel who knows man he's in a wrestling match with a thing that's kind of God and uh, it lasts until sunrise when this thing that might be God does like a, a like an Austin Powers chop does it to the hip and just debilitates Jacob and that's the end of the fight and uh, so yeah out of completely nowhere Jacob gets in a fight with God and yeah it, there's no lead up there's no build up <laughs> there's it's just nothing. like all of a sudden he's wrestling this guy and Jacob doesn't seem like a big fighter no he's leaving out of stuff and then all of a sudden he sees a guy on the river and it just gets rowdy from jump <laughs> too i was going to say that's a big difference with the quran 
is neither the wrestling with the angel or God or whoever, or the tricking, scamming Esau out of his inheritance. Neither of those parts are actually in the Quran. They're just in like the surrounding texts. The uh, it's like the accompanying guide when you play a video game. <laughs> it's it, is it is it sort of like we're gonna ignore those troublesome stories about these guys because we like them. Is it that kind of thing at all? I genuinely could not tell you because <laughs> the last time I uh, explored this chapter, I was seven. Okay. <laughs> There are a lot of interpretations of this wrestling God story. Emily, the one that I was given as a kid was basically like, submit to God because they'll break your hip anyway. Oh, that's exciting. You know? Yeah, I don't remember. Was this another where it's like, let's just focus on the happy stuff? Yeah, probably. Okay. (laughs) Because I don't remember. Gotcha. If we learned it, then I wasn't paying attention that day. Wise. How how good is Jacob at wrestling that he... Defeated God. He's a technical wizard. Sort of. Like we right. know, we know he's right. tricky. So I was picturing him as like a Ric Flair. He's 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 a dirty, cheating scoundrel. <laughs> like he he's like biting God's forehead, put using illegal holds. He's on his knees, like oh no, oh no, don't hurt me, nut shot right to God. He's doing all the dirty scammer tactics and like the refs distracted. Whereas God is just did like he woo straight. when he won? <laughs> <laughs> well, God had to use an illegal ma- maneuver to do it. I feel like he was like, all right, respect, respect. It's also sort of like incomprehensible in so many parts of the Bible and you've talked about, you know, the different sources, but often God is this aloof, untouchable, faraway voice that you hear and it's very strange to see him as someone you can ground and pound in the (laughs) octagon i i wonder why we got this story that makes that literally makes god human and someone you know you're getting in good leg kicks and joe rogan's hollering in the corner like (laughs) like oh he's he's getting beautiful leg shots like (laughs) Like that you might be able to take down. I it's it's so literally out of character for this almighty character and for Jacob too. It, it, I don't know why this fight happens either <laughs> the text or from sort of a step back perspective. Maybe it, Jacob tripped on a rock and hurt his hip, <laughs> and, he and so something. he made up a story that he wrestled with God you guys, you to make himself look tough. <laughs> you, you won't believe it. I got in a fight with somebody, and they're like, "Who? There's no one here." And he's like, "Oh, it uh, must have been God." Mm, yeah, it was a super insanely tough guy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, he you, disappeared you look now. real messed up. You should see the other guy. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Hey, dude, why are you limping? Oh, I got in a fight with God. Oh, okay. Also, I'm, uh, I won. I'm, also, from now on, I'm fighting under the name Israel. Yes. <laughs> right. The, right. Uh, the God angel thing that defeats Jacob via trickery says, cool, man. They're, like, they're, they're panting, you know, like, oh, good game, man. Good game. And he's like, by the way, now your name is Israel, which means the God wrestler. <laughs> And, and, and you just picture Jacob like, why would my name be that? And he's like, let me really spell it out here. Because you just wrestled God. <laughs> and Jacob's like, oh, shit. I just wrestled God all night. Now I have a limp. I have a different name. And my brother's still crossing the river to kill me. <laughs> Is that not the most metal thing of all <laughs> it's time, though? awesome. <laughs> and I love, like, it's every... So cool. <laughs> I love Let's... every interpretation of this story. There's this idea that it's a psychological thing. This is Jacob's conscience. He's wrestling with... He's torn between everyone he knows has either ripped him off or he's ripped them off. And he's standing there wrestling with who he is as a person. Is he going to remain the usurper or is he going to be the person who aspires to be like God? And this is coming right before this moment of reckoning with his brother, this person he ripped off. And then I just want to chime in for me and my Edomite brothers that Esau would have tapped out God in the second round. <laughs> Esau gives him a damn spear. 
just form tackle. Esau's I'm really excited for the Stone Cold uh, Stutter. I'm really excited for the Last Dance version about this specific <laughs> season of fights. Yes. Yeah, so uh, Esau coming out. So Jacob, he, he's definitely sitting in the recliners when Esau made me trick him for his birthright. I took that personally. <laughs> yeah. yeah, he's he's staring at the iPad watching the fight and he's like. Yeah. <laughs> when the, God the, God gives this interview like a thousand years later, like yeah, he had to work work really hard. And, and Jacob's like, I wasn't worried about God. <laughs> the producers of the honestly, Last Dance Bible edition were unable to get Uncle Laban to, to give it a job. He's definitely the Jerry Krause figure here. <laughs> yeah. then, then you have the prophets down the line, like Muhammad and Jesus and whoever. would be like, man, I watched tape of them growing up. And that's it's really why I wanted to do what I do. <laughs> You have like, that's like uh, Penny Hardaway wearing the Jordans. Jacob sort of, he, he's never brought up as like the number one character, but he has definitely the most interesting and funniest arc of these forefathers. Yes. A lot of the other ones have sort of foundational elements that lead to these famous stories of why these religions happen. Jacob, not so much, but his lore is the weirdest and most interesting in comparison to his fathers and sons. It's, it's wild. The Jacob section is definitely the most fun of the four. Jacob, to me, feels like the first fully written human character in the Bible to this point. Adam is just a guy who complains about his wife. Noah is a guy who follows rules. Abel's a guy who smokes meat. <laughs> Jacob does everything. Jacob is like, he's an underdog. He's a trickster. He's a he's a, a survivor, a family man. His name is Israel. In the end, he's, he's a hero. He's a brother. He becomes a brother. Esau loves this guy until the end, despite everything. And like, Jacob goes through this complete arc. He's so many stories put together that he feels like an actual complete human. We were raised to view Jacob as like the good guy. And it's also easy to view him as the bad guy. But I th I think the best, the best, most lovable character here is both. He starts as like a deeply flawed guy. And by the end, you realize there's some of the stuff he had to do. There's some of this stuff that like he didn't have to do, but it's very interesting that he did. You know, outside of the part where he wrestles the almighty, he also just lives a human life. He's got sort of a feud with his brother. He needs to sort of create wealth in certain ways. He gets married. He has kids. He's got some drama there. Whereas a lot of these stories have lives that are sort of unrelatable, where it's like this person's the only human on earth. I that's <laughs> that too. Or this person is founding a religion by themselves. And I'm like, I've never done that, although I'm planning to with Esau. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so Jacob and Esau, they meet, they reunite, they have this conversation where there's like subtext to it, where Esau is being like this big gregarious, like, ah, brother. And Jacob is still kind of hedging, still kind of nervous. Ultimately, it feels like they want to be brothers again. And it's it's written vaguely enough where maybe there's subtext, maybe there's not. But then Genesis 35, God, this time definitely God, tells Jacob his name is now Israel. Jacob's like, I know. <laughs> Isaac dies finally all this time where he was on his chapters death. and chapters ago he was on his death and at the final moment these rival brothers jacob and esau loki and thor reunite at the end continuing this thing throughout Genesis of rival brothers coming together to bury their father. So we have this moment of closure. How nice. Moment of closure. The Edomites on equal equal footing with the Israelites at last. I'm sure the Edomites turn out fine. Yeah, I was thinking about getting some Edomite food after this. <laughs> yes. Uh, I'm going to go on Yelp and type in Edomite <laughs> and see what pops up. As far as we know, it's red lentils. <laughs> yeah, they, no, they don't have lentils. That's that's Jacob's thing. A lot of meat seems like a fun cuisine. Okay. Red meat. So uh, thank you to our guests. Thank Thanks, y'all. This was, this was Thanks, awesome. Bro. This was very very, very fun. It was informative, too. I learned a lot from you guys, so thank you. <laughs> Me, too. Thanks for having Thanks. us. It was fun. Religions are okay. <laughs> yeah. 
So that was another episode of Vacation Bible School Podcast. Lots of family stuff. You could say this was our Focus on the Family episode. Oh. Because, uh, yeah, Focus on the Family, because it was super violent and scary and culty and weird. And straight out of the Bible. Also visit vacationbibleschool.biz to subscribe to our newsletter for more Jacob Wrestling God content. There, There is an actual moral to that story. Until next time on the VBS Podcast.